way back in September when we began this sermon series. I provided an introductory message to the book of Ephesians, and in that message, I said that Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1 is the thesis statement of the letter, which is basically the main point of the letter, what the letter is, uh, could be summarized as. I think Ephesians 4.1 could, could capture uh, Ephesians up in itself and summarize Ephesians uh, as a whole, condensed in that one little verse. Because the first half, chapter, chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians, deal primarily with what theologians have called indicatives, which are things that God has done. And chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians deal primarily with what theologians have called imperatives, which are things that we must do. And in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, you see both of those things gathered up together. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk, imperatives, pardon me, walk, imperatives, things that you must do, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Indicatives, things that God has already done. God has called you to a calling. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of that calling. I think Ephesians 4.1, in that sense, catches up all of Ephesians in itself and becomes a summary statement or a thesis statement for the book of Ephesians, the way that a student might put a thesis statement toward the beginning of his essay, summarizing what it is that he's trying to say the point that he's trying to make the summary of what he's trying to bring across in that essay this is paul's thesis statement he wants the ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that they have received and so what he does is he unfolds the nature of that calling he talks to them first about that calling and then he says this is what it Means this is what it would look like for you to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. That's the structure of the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians 1.4 is a summary of that. <clears throat> now, as Sinclair Ferguson remarks, understanding what the gospel is and how it, that is the gospel, works hinges on grasping the relationship between the indicative and imperative moods in Paul's teaching. Everything he urges us to do from chapter 4 verse 1 and following is dependent on everything he tells us God has already done. Chapter 1 and verse 2 and following. Our faithfulness is a response to God's grace. End quote. So, In other words, if I may paraphrase Sinclair Ferguson, if we're going to understand the nature of the gospel, we've got to make sure that we get the relationship between indicatives and imperatives right. Otherwise, we're going to mix up the gospel and that's going to get us into a whole world of problems. So, with the relationship between indicatives and imperatives in mind, that God has done something, and we are to respond to what God has done. In chapters 4 to 6, Paul will address the right response to the glorious calling of Christians in the church. 
Paul will address the right response to the glorious calling of Christians in the world. Paul will address the right response to the glorious calling of Christians in the family, in the workplace. And finally, Paul will address the right response to the glorious calling of Christians in spiritual warfare at the end of chapter 6. And all of the imperatives that he's going to give us in these last few chapters of Ephesians are to be viewed as responses to God's calling of us. Not conditions of God's calling of us, but responses to God's calling of us. We've got to get that right or we get the gospel wrong. So this morning, I decided that we will stop in chapter 4 and verse 1 and spend a whole sermon on just that verse and just make sure that we get uh, this relationship between indicatives and imperatives right to make sure that we get the gospel right before we move on to all of these imperatives over the next number of weeks and months. So this morning we're going to do two things before we move on in Ephesians to this imperative heavy section of the epistle. We're going to review the, the calling that Christians have received. We're going to review the nature of the calling that Christians have received. Everything we've been looking at over the last three chapters of Ephesians. And then we're going to clarify the nature of the response that we are called to make to that calling. So let's begin with a review of the calling Christians receive. As we saw in chapter 2 and verse 1, we were just as the Ephesians were and just as everybody else is, dead in trespasses and sins. We drove that point home thoroughly the week that we covered that, so I won't belabor the point. But just a reminder that we were dead in trespasses and sins. We weren't just weak. We weren't just struggling. We didn't just need a little bit of help. We were dead in trespasses and sins. There was no spiritual life in us. But God entered into our plight with His own saving activity. When we were unable to do anything, when we were unable to rouse ourselves to any activity that might be helpful to ourselves or might be salvific in some way, when we were unable to do that, God exercised saving activity towards us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Let's look at this in terms of the Trinity. First, there's the Father's everlasting love. John Owen (coughs) talked about how few Christians are experimentally acquainted with the Father's love. He talked about how we sometimes think of the Gospel as Jesus the Son convincing the Father to love us against His will. That as if the Father is full of wrath and full of hatred for sinners and doesn't want to do anything good and doesn't want to do anything kind for us. But God the Son comes and lives a life of perfect righteousness and dies a wrath-bearing death on the cross so that the Father no longer has any excuse to be grumpy and unkind and miserable towards us. Some people think of the Gospel Like that. As if there's no sweetness in the Father, but what Christ the Son purchased on the cross. But this is exactly backwards. The Father has an everlasting love for the elect. 
the Father in eternity past, chapter 1 and verse 4 told us, chose us in Him that is in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Before Christ ever died on the cross, God the Father loved you, Christian. God the Father's heart is, as John Owen says, the fountain from whence Christ the Son came to bleed and to die for sinners. Christ Jesus came not to win or to procure the Father's love for us, but Christ Jesus came because of the Father's love for us. Again, we think back to a verse like John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The God who so loved the world, or the person of the Godhead who is particularly in view in John 3.16, who so loved the world, is the Father. He loved the world such that He gave His Son. The Father's everlasting love. The Father's plan. The Father's purpose. The Father's election. The Father's predestination. The Father's choosing. The Father's heart is the fountainhead, as Owen put it, from whence all of our salvation flows. He chose us, chapter 1 and verse 4 says, to become holy and blameless. He chose us, chapter 1 and verse 5 says, and follow along in your Bibles as I walk through a little bit here. It'll be encouraging to you. Verse 1 and 4, He chose us, chapter 1 and verse 4, pardon me, to become holy and blameless. He chose us, chapter 1 and verse 5, to become sons. He chose us, chapter 1 and verse 7, to be redeemed. Chapter 1 and verse 7, again, to be forgiven. Chapter 1 and verse 11, to receive an inheritance. Chapter 1 and verse 13, to receive the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2 and verse 5, to be brought to spiritual life. Chapter 2 and verse 10, to do good works. Chapter 2 and verse 16, to be reconciled to Him. Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, to be reconciled to other Christians, whether Jews or Gentiles. Chapter 2 and verse 22, to be built together with other Christians into a dwelling place for the Spirit. These are things that have unfolded to us and are, un- are being unfolded to us because of the Father's plan, because of the Father's choosing. Paul leads with that in chapter 1 and verses 3 to 6. He leads with the Father's plan, the Father's choosing, and he goes and unfolds from there the Father having chosen, the Father having planned, what happens then? All of these things are things that are unfolded to us because of the Father's everlasting love, because of the Father's plan, because of the Father's choosing of you, brother, sister, because the Father loved you with an everlasting love. All of these things are being unfolded to you in 
space and in time. And then we think of the Holy Spirit's unfailing application of the Father's plan for us. The Holy Spirit brings us to spiritual life. We see that in chapter 2 and verse 5. When we were dead at that moment, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. And if we were to attribute that work particularly to one person of the Trinity, it would be the Holy Spirit. God brought us by His Spirit from death to life. We see that in chapter 2 and verse 5. The Holy Spirit regenerated us. We covered that at length a, a while ago. So again, I won't belabor the point, but I will repeat the point and just restate the point and uh, bring it fresh into our memories to uh, help us recall the, the wonder of it and the, the joy of it, uh, to impress it fresh upon our hearts as we think about responding to the calling that we've received. It's good to consider again the nature of this calling that we've received. We were dead in our trespasses and sins and the Holy Spirit regenerated us. He gave us a new nature which was no longer opposed to God. A new nature that loves righteousness and hates sin. One of the ways that the Old Testament talks about it uh, in an anticipatory way, anticipating what God will do in the New Covenant, is taking out the heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh. We don't need to be doctors or surgeons or something of that nature to understand that if someone had a heart like stone, it really would not be good for our circulation and therefore for our life. But if a heart of stone was replaced with a heart of flesh, there would be some hope, there would be some life. This is what God has done for us by His Spirit. Regeneration, being born again. He opened our eyes to the Gospel. He opened our ears to the Gospel. That way we might see the glory of Christ. That we might hear the call of Christ. Christ preaching peace to us, as it were. And believe... uh, in Him, that we would be willing and able to believe in Christ Jesus for salvation from our sin. The Holy Spirit brought us to spiritual life in the first place, according to the Father's plan, right? And He nurtures and strengthens the spiritual life that He gives us. We saw this last week as we looked at chapter 3 and verse 16 and, uh, uh, and following where Paul prays that the Ephesians would be strengthened with power through God's Spirit in their inner being. Not only does the Holy Spirit impart life in the first place, but He continues to strengthen believers with power in their inner being, imparting to them strength and sustenance all the way through their Christian lives. We talk about God holding us fast and causing us to persevere. How does He do that? By His Spirit. We talk about being kept for the inheritance that is kept in heaven for us. Who is it that does the keeping? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit nurtures and strengthens the spiritual life that He gives us. And more generally, the Holy Spirit applies to us all the blessings that the Father has planned for us to receive. All of the blessings 
that come to us from the overflow of the Father's heart of love towards us. It is the Spirit who applies these things to us. We don't go to heaven to get these blessings. Rather, the Holy Spirit comes down from heaven to give us these things. So the Father's love is the source of the Holy Spirit's generosity toward us. And the Holy Spirit Himself is the delivery system, as it were, of all divine blessings. And the basis upon which the Father can justly give us His good gifts. The basis upon which the Holy Spirit can justly deliver these gifts is the work of God the Son. Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness in place of our sinfulness. That righteousness is imputed to us. It's legally transferred to us as if that righteousness had been our own righteousness such that we deserved the blessings that God gives us. And then Jesus died a sin-bearing, punishment-bearing death though He was innocent. He died as a substitute for us. His death is credited to us, legally transferred to us as if His death had been ours, as if we had already received the due punishment for our sin so that no outstanding punishment remains. It's because of the work of God the Son that God the Father's blessings can justly come to us through God the Spirit. It's on the basis of Christ's merit, freely credited to us, that the Father's plan becomes more than Him simply overlooking or ignoring our sin to the detriment of His justice. It's by virtue of our relationship to Jesus Christ, God's Son, our representative and our substitute, that God the Father blesses us without compromising His justice. Again, look at your Bibles. We're going to walk through Ephesians again a little bit. Look at verse 1, chapter, pardon me, chapter 1 and verse 3. It is in Christ that we were chosen in the first place. Chapter 1 and verse 5, it is through Christ that we were predestined for adoption as sons. It is in the Beloved, namely Christ Jesus, that we are blessed. Chapter 1 and verse 6. Verse 7, it is in Christ that we have redemption. It is through His blood. It is in Christ that we have forgiveness for our trespasses. Chapter 1 and verse 11, it is in Christ that we have obtained an inheritance. It is in Christ, verse 13, that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Verses 19 and 20, it is in Christ that God's power is at work. It is together with Christ, chapter 2 and verse 5, that we are made alive. Chapter 2 and verse 6, it is in Christ Jesus that we are seated in the heavenly places. It is in Christ that we receive the immeasurable riches of God's grace in kindness towards us. Chapter 2 and verse 7. Chapter 2 and verse 10, it is in Christ Jesus that we are recreated for good works. Chapter 2 and verse 13, it is in Christ Jesus that we have been brought near. Chapter 2 and verse 14, Christ Himself is our peace. Chapter 2 and verse 16, it is through the cross of Christ that we are reconciled to God. Chapter 2 and verse 18, it is through Christ that we obtain access in one spirit to the Father. 
chapter 2 and verse 20. Christ Jesus Himself is the cornerstone upon which the church is built. Chapter 2 and verse 22, it is in Him that we are being built together with other Christians into the church. And chapter 3 and verse 19, it is the love of Christ which the Holy Spirit works to unfold to us and illuminate for us. And it is in this manner, taking hold of the love of Christ, that we are filled with all the fullness of God. As I've said before, Christ Jesus is like the neck of an hourglass through which all of the sand of God's blessings are poured from heaven down to sinners on earth. All that the triune God has planned to give us comes to us from the Father's heart through the Spirit's power on the basis of the Son's mediation. We were called by God to new life according to the Father's plan, through the Spirit in Christ. This is the hope to which we have been called. Chapter 1 and verse 18. This is the calling that Paul refers to in chapter 4 and verse 1. Let's consider now the nature of the response we're called to make to that calling. Your calling is not alone. It is not a loan. It wasn't lent to you on credit. Meriting salvation is not the gospel, even if we supposedly merit salvation after receiving it. It would be wrong to think that we can in any way or at any time purchase or repay God for the gracious gift of salvation that He has given us in Christ. As G.I. Williamson has said, one can as well mix fire and water as grace and works. And don't push it too far because we know that a grease fire isn't extinguished by water. Salvation is not like a purchase that you can make, gaining enough currency to pay for another thing that you want. We do not nor can we save up enough moral currency to pay for salvation in the first place. And most of us are pretty clear on this. Uh, We understand that we can't make ourselves good enough in order that God would justify us. But neither is salvation like a purchase that we make on a credit card or a loan. Using currency that we do not currently possess enough of, hoping that we will one day gain enough currency to pay off our debt. We do not have, nor can we ever acquire, enough moral currency to pay off the debt that we owe to God for our salvation. It is by grace that we have been saved. Through faith, yes, but even that is not our own doing. Even faith is something that we never would have exercised apart from grace apart from the Spirit's work of regeneration. Faith is not a work that we do to merit salvation. Salvation and all of its benefits, including faith itself and the resultant good works, is a gift of God's grace, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's from Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 9. 
So your salvation is not a purchase made either by cash or credit. At least not your cash or credit. Christ has purchased it for us. And get this real clear. You can never pay Him back. So when Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've received, he's not urging us to repay God for the salvation He has loaned us on credit. Salvation is not attained by our works done prior to receiving our justification, nor is our justification attained by our works done after receiving our justification. We just do not merit justification before or after we receive it. So when Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received, he's not urging us to repay God for the salvation uh, that we have received as if, as if God has kind of given it to us on a loan, expecting us eventually to pay Him back. That's not how it works. However, we do owe something to God. Prior to being justified, we owed God our obedience. And since we did not give God the obedience He is due, we also incurred a debt to Him of our own souls to be punished for sin. Imagine in a nation which practices the death penalty, there is a father and a son. And the father is a benevolent father. He loves his son. He cares for his son. He protects his son. He provides for his son. He spends time with his son. He tells his son, I love you, son. It would only be right or fitting for that son to live a life of love and respect and obedience towards his father. And let's further say that this father and son entered into an agreement with one another. They defined their terms of their relationship in such a way that the son promised obedience in a certain situation and the father promised reward for that obedience. But when the time came for the son to render the obedience that he agreed to, the son instead shot and killed the father and ran. In such a scenario, the son has a double debt. He owes the original debt of obedience to his father, which he did not give him, but he has also come to owe the government of that nation his very life. Because in that nation which practices the death penalty, you kill a man, you yourself die. He has incurred a double debt. He owes that original obedience and he owes his very life as payment uh, uh, in order to be punished for the crime that he has committed. We are like that son. We have a double debt to God ever since Adam's fall into sin. We humans owed God obedience in the first place. But since we did not give Him that obedience, we owe Him our very souls to be punished by eternal death according to the covenant or the terms of relationship that God entered into with Adam. So as humans, naturally speaking, we have a double debt. This obedience and 
also uh, our very souls and our bodies to be punished by God for our sin. But wait, you might say, doesn't the gospel free us from that double debt? Doesn't the gospel mean we don't owe God anything anymore? The 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith is helpful to us here. In chapter 19 and paragraph 5 it says, The moral law does forever bind all, as well justified persons or Christians as others, to the obedience thereof. Neither does Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. In other words, if we should have obeyed God when God was merely our creator, then how much more should we obey when God is both our creator and our redeemer? God in the gospel has set us free from the curse and penalty of our sin. Jesus has paid the debt that we owed of uh, a human life offered up to bear the wrath that we deserve for our sin. Christ has paid that debt. And Christ has offered up to God a life of perfect righteousness such that we don't owe God perfect righteousness as a condition of our justification anymore. But if it would be right and fitting, if we owed God obedience just by the very fact that He created us, He has a right over us, that He was benevolent to us in creation, how much more now that not only is He still all those things to us, but also Christ has answered the legal demands of the law on our behalf. How much more do we owe God obedience? We owe God still obedience. God in the gospel has set us free from the curse and penalty of our sin. And God in the gospel has set us free from the legal demands to offer up our righteous life as a condition of our justification. But God in the gospel has not set us free from the obligation to obey Him. In fact, by redeeming us, by issuing us such a glorious calling as we reviewed a few moments ago, God has not only dissolved, but has actually much strengthened this obligation to obey Him. And this is the sort of language that Paul is using in Ephesians 4.1. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. Paul, a formidable preacher of grace and grace alone. Paul, the author of Galatians as well as Ephesians, is not saying that we should attempt to pay off God for the justification that He's given us, treating justification as if it was a loan which we could pay off sooner or later and thereby turn what was first a grace-based salvation into eventually a works-based salvation as we pay off our credit card or our mortgage, so to speak. That's not what Paul's saying. But Paul is saying that we have an obligation to God. The calling that God has given us in the gospel doesn't render effort toward obedience unimportant or legalistic. To the contrary, Paul implies here in Ephesians 
that we shouldn't make an effort toward obedience that is equal in scale to the calling we've received. That's what worthy means. Paul is saying, make an effort now to live in a way that is worthy of this calling that you have received. Make an effort, in other words, toward obedience to God that is equal in scale. That's what worthy means. To the calling that you have received. And since Christians have received such a big calling into the Christian life, what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1 is that we should make a big effort in the Christian life. Christians have received a big calling into the Christian life, and so Christians should make a big effort in the Christian life. Since we have received such a grand calling, we should make a grand effort at obedience. We're going to sing in conclusion after this message, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. And toward the end of that great hymn, the hymn writer says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. There was a missionary once who said, If Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for Him. See, we've got, we got to banish any thought of earning, either before or after receiving our justification. Banish any thought of becoming good enough for God before He justifies you. But banish any thought also of acting as if our justification is a debt that somehow we can pay off by a vigorous enough effort. Banish any thought of earning. Christ has already answered all the legal demands of the law on your behalf, Christian. And yet, the only fitting response, the only right response, what God still expects of us is an effort as big as the calling that He has given us toward obedience to Him. So we should make a grand effort at obedience in response to such a grand calling. We should make an individual effort at obedience. This is evident from directions to individuals, imperatives to individuals, considered as individuals in chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians. There are things in here that Paul is saying individuals must do. Individuals must respond to their glorious calling in these particular ways. And he singles out individuals. says, you respond this way. You respond this way. You respond this way. If you're a husband, for example, you need to respond to your glorious calling this way. If you're a wife, you've got to respond to your glorious calling in this particular way. So on and so forth. So as individuals, we need to make an effort at obedience as individuals. What does it look like for me to make 
a big effort at obedience in response to the big calling that I've received? What does that look like? But we also need to make a corporate effort at obedience. And this is evident from directions to groups of people in Ephesians chapter uh, 4, 5, and 6. Paul writes sometimes to individuals, husbands. If you're a husband, you need to act this way. You listen to me as an individual right now. I'm not talking to the group of you. You, you husband. Listen up. This is what it looks like for you to respond to the gospel. But at other times, what Paul says is something like, y'all, you all, all of you, listen to me. This is what it looks like for you together to respond to this glorious calling. This is what your church needs to look like. This is how... You all ought to to treat one another. This is how y'all need to relate to one another as you move forward. You together. And so not only as individuals, but together as groups, as a collective. Corporately, we need to make a big effort toward obedience in response to the big calling that we've received. What would it look like in 2018 for you as an individual, to respond to the big calling that you've received? What would it look like for you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received? What sin do you need to put away? What have you been playing with? What sin have you been, been, been playing with and trifling with? Harboring? What do you need to put away? Get serious about holiness. In 2018, you've been loved with an everlasting love by God the Father. God the Spirit has raised you from the dead. I was going to say woken you up from a slumber, but that's too weak. God the Spirit has raised you up from the dead. And God the Spirit is committed to making you holy to nourishing and strengthening the spiritual life that He first imparted to you, to strengthen you in your inner being. What does it look like? What is it going to look like for you as an individual in 2018 to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received? What is God calling you to do? Not only what is God calling you to stop doing, but what is God calling you to do in 2018, what does it look like to grow in Christ-likeness in 2018? To walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received? What will it look like for you individually? Everybody's shifting eye contact here. What does it look like? I'm talking to you. What does it look like for you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received. In 2018, this, this is written for you, each of you, as individuals, as it is for me. What does it look like? What will it look like for you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received in 2018? Give serious thought to that at the beginning of this year. In God's providence, I didn't, I didn't plan out the sermon series this way. We just landed here. But it's the first... Sunday of a year and if there are changes we ought to make we ought to make them whether it's March or January but nevertheless it is the beginning of a new year let's turn over a new leaf 
It's explicit right here in the Scripture. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. You're free from the curse of the law. Christ Jesus has answered all the legal demands of the law on your behalf. We're not talking about earning your justification or paying God off for the justification that He advanced to you by credit. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about legalism. We're talking about good, biblical, gospel-centered Christianity where we make a vigorous response to God's grace by His grace, by the help of His Spirit, looking at the promises of His Word and taking hold of them by faith, trusting in the ongoing provision of God for our spiritual sustenance and nourishment day by day. We're talking about that kind of Christianity. What will that look like for you in 2018? What does that need to look like for you in 2018? And what will it look like for us? We're a brand new church. It's hard to believe, but... We've actually been going just over three months. September 17th was our first official service, which means, which means January 17th will be four months. That's pretty new. We're basically a brand new church. What will it look like for us together now to be a church that walks together in a manner worthy of the calling we've received? What will that look like in terms of our relationships with one another? What is God's blueprint for a church? How does God want the men in the church to relate to the other men in the church? How does God want the women in the church to relate to the other women in the church? How does God want the pastors of the church to relate to the other members of the church? How does God want the other members of the church to relate to the pastors of the church? and the deacons of the church, likewise, and so on and so forth. What, what should our Sunday mornings look like? What should our Sunday evenings look like? As we gather for worship together, what should that look like? What, right down to the details. In terms of even things like attendance. Right? And, and even, even things like the time we arrive for the service and the way that we prepare our hearts for the worship of God. What, does it, what will it look like for us together as a church to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received? What would it look like for God to look down, as it were, on this little building and see us gathering Sunday by Sunday throughout 2018 and say, by my grace... This little church is walking in a manner worthy of the calling that they have received. What would that look like? Let's think about these things. And we will unfold some of these things more explicitly over the coming weeks and months as we look at the scriptures. What will it look like in our singing? What will it look like in our listening? What will it look like as he addresses families? Not just, it's not just only individuals and then the only group he addresses is the church, but he addresses individuals within families, but by extension, families. What will it look like in your family to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received in 2018? What would it, what would it look like? Husbands, dads, what would it look like for you to lead your families to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received? 
throughout 2018? What would that look like? We need to make a big effort as individuals and as groups together, families, churches, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've received. We need to make a big effort toward that because we've received a big calling. We need to make an effort that is equal in scale to the calling we've received. That's what worthy means. As we do that, a couple further points. One is we should prioritize our own obedience first before others. This is not to say that others have a lesser obligation to obey. Everybody has the same obligation to obey. But we shouldn't, as we go into 2018, focus on everybody else's sins and not our own. We should prioritize our own obedience first before others. Everybody's obligation to obey is the same. But it's helpful in the psychology of sanctification to look at our own sin primarily. First. Foremost. And this is evident from the fact that focusing on the sin of others doesn't actually help us obey, does it? When when was the last time you got holier by thinking how unholy everybody around you is? Right? We know that we know that's not true. Is is blame shifting, right? Or acting as if the problems in our lives are everybody else's problem but ours. Dwelling like that, thinking like that actually doesn't make us any holier. Right? So we're not saying other people don't have to obey. Everybody has the same obligation to obey. But it's basically saying what I'm trying to say is you worry about you. Right? Clean up your own backyard first before you go criticize everybody else's, right? In the preface to the 1689 Confession, the authors of the Confession wrote this. First of all, it's interesting to note that they called their day a backsliding day in 1689. Well, 1677, I should say, when it was penned. They said, Oh, that in this backsliding day, we might not spend our breath in fruitless complaints of the evils of others. But may everyone begin at home to reform in the first place our own hearts and ways, and then to quicken all that we have influence upon to the same work. Start at home. You want to see Reformation in Barbados? Start at home. Start with your own hearts and ways. Start with your own families. In this backsliding day, let's not spend our breath in fruitless complaints of the evils of others. Whether they be uh, other denominations, other Christian traditions, let's not take it upon ourselves to be the fruitless complainants against others. Right? Let's not make 2018 the year of fruitless complaints against the evils of others. Let's make 2018 the year of beginning the Reformation at home, reforming in our own hearts and ways. And then, right, we'll get there eventually to quicken all that we have influence upon to the same work. Not just, not just other traditions and other denominations, but even those outside the church, right? Not just to, not just to stop complaining about 
other Christians, other nominal Christians, other so-called Christians, even other legitimate Christians and other denominations, but those outside the church, right? Let's not just be those who just complain about, you know, how, how wicked and evil, you know, various subcultures of Bajan society are. You know, the guys down, liming down there at the block, you know, this Kadumin day or like, you know, let's not, let's not be those who are just complaining about how evil others are, but begin the Reformation at home, right? This is, it's so interesting to read that from 1677, the authors of our confession of faith in this backsliding day, right? We could certainly say the same about our day. And their thinking, their advice was, let's begin the Reformation at home in our own hearts and in our own ways. And then, in due time, quicken all that we have influence upon to the same work. As I said a few moments ago, right? This is basically saying, clean up your own yard first. Right? So let's say that you let the grass grow for a few weeks. It's getting a little long. And your neighbor comes across the road. Starts complaining about your grass. But you look across. It looks like this guy hasn't mowed his grass in this millennia, millennium. And he probably hasn't mowed his grass since at least 1999. Right? And he's got old tires in the front yard. And little pieces of a garden hose that have broken off. And there's a big uh, anthill in his front yard that he hasn't knocked down. And, you know, the, the boards on the front of his house are all, the paint's all peeling and so on and so forth. You think, why is this guy coming across to talk to me about my yard? Right? Or a more biblical, a more biblical analogy, take the log out of your own eye first. Right? Deal with what's in your own eye first before you go talk to somebody else, right? Let's let the Reformation begin at home first. Focus first on our own sins, right? Not, not where is the church down the street or the guys down the street, where do they need to grow? Where do they need to repent? But where do, where do I need to repent? Where do we need to repent? What does, not what does holiness look like for them, but what does holiness look like for us? So that as we listen to sermons uh, Sunday by Sunday, we're not sitting here thinking, man, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this. Right? If, only, if only my wife or my husband wasn't out in the wiggle room this morning. Right? If, only, if only so-and-so had been here today, they needed to hear this. Right? But as we listen, may we be attentive to what the Holy Spirit may be doing in our hearts, convicting us personally. Even if this applies a lot to someone else and only a little bit to you, it still applies a little bit to you. So never mind how much it applies to somebody else. Right? Are you perfect? Are you on par with Jesus on a certain point? Well, no. So look at what's being preached. Look at what's being taught as you sit down and read the scriptures each morning, morning by morning, doing your own daily devotions. Don't, don't be reading and again thinking, man, oh man, I'm going to talk to my wife about this after work because this is one area where she really struggles. Right? As you open, read for yourself. Read the Bible first and foremost for yourself. Right? Focus primarily on your own obedience first before you focus on the obedience of others. And then... Related to that is that we should prioritize our own obedience irrespective of what others do. Right? There's that old song, though none go with me, still I will follow. 
Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. At the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus is talking to Peter. And He's telling Peter about the manner in which he would die. The Scriptures say in John chapter 21 and verse 19, This Jesus said to show Peter by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, that is Peter, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, following them. The one who had also leaned back against Jesus during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, that is John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And it was never mind what other people do. Never mind what my plan is for other people. Never mind that. Peter, what is that to you? You follow me. So resolve this year. Don't none go with me. Still I will follow. Regardless of what my husband does, regardless of what my wife does, regardless of what others in my family do, regardless of what my best friends do, regardless of what the brothers and the sisters at CRBC do, regardless of what Pastor John does, though none go with me, still I will follow. What is that to me? I will follow Him. Right? Determine to focus on walking in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received this year. Individually, to make a big effort and to to play your part in the collective, in the group aspects of that group sanctification, that corporate sanctification. Determine that you're going to play your part regardless of what others do. And focus on your own sanctification first and foremost this year. Stop worrying about how other people need to grow and and focus first on where you need to grow. God will deal with the others if they belong to Him. If they're His people and the sheep of His pasture, He'll deal with them in His own way, in His own time. But you, focus on yourself. Read the Bible primarily for yourself. Listen to sermons primarily for yourself. You focus on growing. And determine that even, even if... Even if others should not grow in the way that you think they should. Even if others should turn back altogether from following Christ. What is that to you? Follow Jesus. So in the coming weeks and months, we'll study through the rest of Ephesians together, Lord willing, on Sunday mornings. And we'll learn from the tip of Paul's pen the right response to the glorious calling of Christians in the church the right response to the glorious calling of Christians in the world, the right response to the glorious calling of Christians in the family, the right response to the glorious calling of Christians in the workplace, and finally, Paul will close with the right response to the glorious calling of Christians in spiritual warfare. But let us settle this in principle today, at the beginning of this year, that whatever response the Scripture requires of us 
in 2018 to the glorious calling that we've received. Let us settle it in principle today that the answer is yes. That the answer is, I will follow. Let us settle in principle today that we will make a big effort toward obedience because we have received a big calling. Let us take Ephesians 4, 1 to heart before we take the next three chapters in their specificity to heart. Let us take chapter 4 and verse 1 to heart. Yes, by God's grace, I will make an effort to live obediently that is equal in scale to the calling that I've received. Yes, at the beginning of this year, I'm committed to that. In principle, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that I have received. May you do that and as each one as an individual. And may we do that as a church. May 2018 be a year that Covenant Reformed Baptist Church together and all of the individuals who comprise it walk more consistently in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. As individuals, may we put away sins that trip, up, trip us up, pollute us, and dishonor God. And as a church, may we grow together as God would have us do and be where He would have us be. May we make a big effort personally and we, may we make a big effort collectively to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've received. May we this year be less concerned about what other Christians and other churches are doing and clean up our own yard first. As the confession says, everyone beginning at home to reform in the first place our own hearts and ways. Avoiding the danger that actually the 1689 preface goes on to warn about that we might deceive ourselves by resting in and trusting to a form of godliness without the power of it and without inward experience of the efficacy of those truths that are professed by us. May it not be so. May we begin at home to reform in the first place our own hearts and ways. That we might not just be hearers or talkers of the Word, but doers of the Word. Lastly, may we all be resolved, each one as individuals and together, Uh, as a church, to make a big effort in responding to a big calling, to walk in a manner worthy of that calling, regardless of what anyone else does. May each of us truly, sincerely, and devotedly walk with God in 2018, whoever else may or may not walk with us.